0: Alright, well hey everybody, it's good to see you. Uh, my name is Brian, I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit, and uh, we're continuing our Advent series. I know a lot of you weren't here last week, it was kind of on the tail end of Thanksgiving. What we talked about last week is how a lot of this series is actually going to be taken um, through the inspiration of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who was a, he was a scholar, he was a theologian, uh, he was an author, and he lived in Germany, and he was German, he, he lived in Germany during the Second World War. He's pretty famous because he opposed Adolf Hitler, got thrown into prison, And it was eventually executed. But it was as he was awaiting his execution that he wrote a lot. And we have access to a lot of his writings. And as he was writing, uh, we saw that he wrote uh, a tremendous amount about Christmas and Advent. And what we said last week is how we really want that kind of understanding of Christmas and this season to be true in our own lives. That rather than this just kind of being a season that we endure because we just kind of get through it or we enjoy because it's just kind of this like feel-good season, uh, we experience it. We experience it uh, to the point that it, for it like it was for Bonhoeffer, it shapes and impacts and trickles into the most practical and important aspects and areas uh, of our lives. Now, as we continue to kind of look at themes that Bonhoeffer offers, the theme that we're going to be looking at tonight is one of mystery. Um, Mystery. It's interesting for Bonhoeffer, uh, the the great mystery of Advent, that God would become man. We're gonna we're gonna talk a good bit about this tonight. Um, This great mystery, uh, as he was in prison, it it was a tremendous comfort for him in the midst of his crisis. You know, for for most of us, mystery kind of freaks us out. But for Bonhoeffer, uh, the greatest mystery kind of in the entire universe was a tremendous comfort for him. In fact, we have access to the first letter, uh, the letter that he wrote as he was getting ready to spend his first Christmas. Uh, in prison. He actually wrote it to his parents. And here's what he said to them. He was trying to tell them kind of like, it's going to be okay. He says, from the Christian point of view, spending Christmas in prison doesn't pose any special problem. Most likely, a more meaningful and authentic Christmas is celebrated here by many people than in places where only the name of the feast remains. God turns toward the very places from which humans tend to turn away. And here's what's really interesting. We're going to talk about kind of like, what does that even mean here in a second? But I think on the front end, what's tremendously fascinating to me is that for Bonhoeffer, mystery would be comforting rather than crisis-inducing. Because for me, at least, um, mystery is not a good thing in my life. If something is unknown in my life, particularly in an area of life that matters the most, it's probably for many of you as well. If you can think about an aspect of your life that's mysterious and you don't really know the outcome, um, you tend to uh, not be comforted. You tend to freak out, to lose sleep, to kind of think about the worst possible outcomes uh, that could possibly happen to you. I was even thinking about this for myself, like, like when there's mystery in communication, for example. Um, like I remember when Megan and I uh, first started dating, and this will show my age at some point, but the way we first started talking um, was actually through AOL's Instant Messenger. <laughs> and, um, and Megan, like, it's just kind of her personality. Like, she's not super expressive in Instant Messenger or texting. Um, and so when she would say, hey, she would say, hey. It wasn't hey with an exclamation point. It wasn't hey with an exclamation point and a smiley face. It was just, hey. And when it was bye, it wasn't bye, I can't wait to see you. It was just like, Bye. And um, I'll tell you, like, that was kind of mysterious for me because most of us, you know, are kind of so self-conscious about that. We were very overtly expressive to let people know. But there was kind of mystery in the communication. And for me, like, every single time she said bye, I kind of thought to myself, you know what? Like, the next time we see each other, she's probably going to say we need to talk. And uh, that's not going to be a good talk because she's going to say this should probably come to an end because she just said bye and not bye with a winky face. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER you know, in the same way, I feel like when there's something maybe even wrong with us, and we don't really know what it is, um, that really freaks us out. That m- mystery really freaks us out. I was even thinking about, I remember um, one time um, I demanded that my mom, I think I was like 15 years old, I demanded that my mom took me to the emergency room because I was experiencing chest pains, and I was sure that I was having a heart attack. Um, I was 15 years old. like I wasn't that stressed out. You know, I was like, okay. Um, but I demanded because I just kind of thought to myself, like, that's what I'm having. And she took me to the emergency room. Any of you who have taken kids to the emergency room know it is a tremendously expensive affair. So that's how much my, my parents love me. And um, I got there and they said, You are having indigestion. And um, <laughs> I came back home and uh, I felt much better the next day. It wasn't a heart attack. Um, but I, I think if you can kind of think, think, I mean, even right now, about some aspect of your life where the the outcome is uncertain, or you're not exactly sure how things are going to go in that relationship, or at work, or whatever it is, or with your finances, that mystery, the unknown for you, tends to not produce comfort, but crisis. uh, More trouble sleeping at night. But it's interesting for Bonhoeffer, the greatest mystery of the universe, the the great mystery of Advent, um, really provided for him a comfort in the moment of life that he needed the most, as he's in prison awaiting his execution. And for us, we want to kind of understand the, the great mystery of the universe through that lens. We need that. And, and so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to kind of talk some about Bonhoeffer. We're going to look at the passage we just read. Um, and we're going to try to figure out, like, why is this deep mystery such good news for our lives? Why should it provide the level of comfort that we see historically in the life of a Bonhoeffer? Now, the, the way that we're going to do this is looking at this passage in Exodus 33 that we just studied. And um, and here's, here's kind of what we're going to look at. Um, let, me, let me set this up first. Is, um, I've, I was looking at this week. I don't know how I found this, but I found this like, handout that elementary school teachers give their kids um, for like, literature class, I guess. And it said that part of, any mystery, or part of any great mystery, there's kind of five key components. You have a setting and a plot and characters and stuff. But kind of the biggest part of any great mystery is actually a problem. It's a problem that has to be solved. And so before we just kind of jump into like, the mysterious solution of Advent, we first have to identify like, what is the problem that the mysterious solution of Advent is trying to solve. And so this passage really kind of gets at the heart of answering that question. Now, here's what's really interesting about this passage. It's, happened, um, it's the next book. After the book that we looked at uh, last week, it's the book of Exodus. And uh, what's happened to this point is God's people have grown and multiplied to the point that they got enslaved. They became kind of such a threat that the Egyptian empire enslaved them. And uh, God comes and he does something known as the Exodus. He comes and he liberates them. He frees them. There's actually a movie coming out about this uh, next week. It'll probably be ridiculous. It stars the guy who played Batman, uh, so we know it'll be ridiculous. And uh, so it'll come out next week, and you can see what didn't happen. Um, and so, so God frees them. Uh, they go out into the wilderness, and God gives Moses something that you've probably all heard of called the Ten Commandments. Now, while uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, and he's meeting with God and gets the Ten Commandments, the people who are at the bottom of the mountain, they get kind of restless, and uh, they throw the ultimate Pagan party. Um, they kind of craft this golden calf. They start worshiping it as God. And Moses comes down the mountain and he sees the people dancing and singing in a circle uh, around this golden calf, which ultimately leads to, I think, maybe the funniest line in the entire Bible. When Moses asks his brother Aaron, like who was supposed to be supervising everybody, um, how did this happen? And here's how uh, Aaron responds uh, He responds with, um, Where is it? Oh, here it is. Uh, He said, I said to them, uh, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Because we all know how you just throw raw goods into a fire, and out pops sculptures. Um, So, yeah. Uh, Anyways, Moses gets so mad that he actually chucks the Ten Commandments to the ground and shatters them. He had a bit of a temper. And um, what do we do when something gets shattered or broken? Like, what happens if you break your iPhone? You go get a new one. You replace it. So that's what Moses does. He's like, oh, he goes back up the mountain, goes back to God. It's almost like he bought the insurance plan, and he goes and gets new Ten Commandments from God. And that kind of leads then to this conversation between God and Moses uh, that they are having right here that we just read. And it opens with what we said in verse 18, what we just looked at in verse 18. Moses makes this request of God. It's a really interesting request. He says, uh, please show me your glory. Now, this is really fascinating because I think what we're getting a glimpse into is the difficulties that Moses is feeling as a leader. Anybody who's led, anybody knows that it's tremendously hard and you often think, well, I need different people to lead um, and everything would be okay or I need different circumstances and everything would be okay. But it's interesting for Moses, he's experienced the greatest trial in his leadership up to date and he says, the greatest thing I need is to see God for who he really is. When he's making the request like, God, let me see your glory, that word glory, it's it's the reflection of who God really is. And it's like Moses is saying, like, I am trying to endure this terrible trial in the midst of my leadership, and I need to see you for who you really are, your sovereignty and your weight and your glory and your majesty and your grandeur. And that can be an anchor for my soul to help me endure in the midst of trying uh, leadership circumstances. So Moses comes, and he makes this request, and it's really interesting how God responds then. Look at verse 19 and 20. God God responds in this way. And he, that's God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim uh, proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Uh, But then look at verse 20. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, he... Here's where we're getting at the heart of the central problem that the mystery of Advent is trying to solve. Moses says to God, I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to experience you. I want a relationship with you. And And God says back to Moses, there is such a radical disparity between who you are and who I am that if I really enter fully into the room, you will go poof and die and disintegrate up into smoke. There's such a radical disparity between who we are and who God is, that he is all good and we are sinful, that he is holy and we are not, that he is whole and we are broken. There's a weight to this disparity that it overwhelms a human being to the point that they die if they see God for who he really is. That's a great problem of the Old Testament. How does a holy, sinless, perfect God dwell with and have a relationship with Broken, sinful human beings like us. Now, before we try to just kind of answer that question, let let me just, I I think you need to feel really the weight of this scene right here in terms of what it is that God is declaring. I think this is really hard for us to grasp. When I was reading this, it was very hard for me to kind of wrap my mind around. And I think it's hard for us as Americans to really wrap our mind around uh, this because I think for us, like God is, he's not this, at least. He's not that great and weighty and and majestic. He's like a buddy you grab a beer with. He's the guy who's like references the man upstairs in terrible country music songs. Um, And it's not the lyrics that make him terrible. But like, I do not like country music. Um, Sorry for anybody who does. But um, what was I saying? Okay. Uh, but, But that's really like the posture towards God. Like, he's just this buddy. He's like a golden retriever. Like, let's hang out. It's like this is painting a radically different picture of who God is. And it's hard to wrap our minds around this, but I think we get a glimpse into the truth that God is proclaiming here when we think about moments where we have been in the immediate presence of someone Uh, who possesses tremendous authority or influence or power. Uh, Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's a famous athlete. uh, Maybe it's somebody who's a leader in your industry. Maybe it's an author. Maybe it's somebody who's really important in the company that you work for. If you've ever been in the presence of somebody like that, uh, you know there's a certain weight that you feel uh, as they walk into the room. Uh, I think I've shared this story before, but for me... um, I haven't met many famous people in my entire life, but I remember um, when I was in college, I went to the University of South Carolina, um, where, which at USC, um, football is not like a religion. It is a religion. Um, in 2000, we did not win a single game, and we still sold out our 80,000-seat stadium every single week, um, which I challenge you to find a religion that has more devout adherence than that. Um, and so if at South Carolina, uh, religion... or Football is a religion. The great high priest of that religion is Coach Steve Spurrier. And um, I never met Coach Spurrier, but I did get sort of in the presence of him a single time. My senior year, I was running um, around the stadium. I lived right by there, and I was doing a few laps. And I was coming on my final lap, and I came to the very front and uh, up pulled Coach Spurrier in his car. Like, I saw him right through the window, and I was running, and I froze. Like, literally just came to a complete stop. And it was probably about the distance from like, where I'm standing right now to like, the back room. And he just stopped and kind of looked at me as well because it's like, you know, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is Coach Spurrier," and he was probably like, "Oh my gosh, like is this guy going to try to like stab me when I get out of the car? Like what? Like this is a little bit awkward. This guy's just standing here, completely stopped, and I'm just staring at him, and he's staring at me, and I'm staring at him, staring at me, and I can't do anything. I can't even move because I'm kind of so overwhelmed by like that's Coach Spurrier, that's the head coach of the University of South Carolina Fighting Gamecocks football program." Until he eventually he makes the first move. He doesn't get out of the car because he probably thought I was a psycho, and he instead just through kind of the window. I see him raise up his hand and wave at me. To which was so overwhelming. This is really embarrassing, but it is the truth. It was so overwhelming to me, I didn't do anything other than take off sprinting in the opposite direction. Like, I really did, because I was so overwhelmed. And um, I, I know that's like really silly and really overwhelming. In fact, um, a few weeks later, um, <laughs> a few weeks later, one of my buddies from college actually sent me a picture of Coach Spurrier. Um, at a NASCAR race, with his shirt off, sunbathing, drinking Bud Light, and I was like, I probably shouldn't have been that intimidated by this guy. Um, But... When you get in the presence of somebody that you have tremendous respect for or has tremendous influence or power, it is tremendously overwhelming. This is why teenage girls getting around their favorite band like literally have meltdowns and start weeping. This is why if you see guys who are kind of waiting in line for the autograph of their favorite athlete when they finally get up there to meet them and when they finally get a picture with them, these strong, burly, uh, muscle-bound dudes like start bubbling over their words and they start, you know, shaking and, oh my... My gosh, like I can't believe you're the quarterback of the 1975 Broncos. Like that just blows my mind. It's amazing to us that when somebody of tremendous influence or power walks into the room, we do feel the weight of their glory. And with people, a lot of times when you think about it, like it's kind of silly. Again, when you see Coach Spurrier shirtless at age 65, you're like, I shouldn't be like intimidated by you. You're just a normal guy. But with God, when you think rationally about it, with God, like it's not silly. It's not ridiculous. It's totally rational. When we understand if God is who he says he is, if he really is who he says he is, if he is all good, if he is all powerful, if he is the one, I mean it's hard to even wrap our minds around this, but if he's the one who created the mountains, and if you've ever tried to take in the view from a 14er, for example, I mean the view is so great that we can hardly comprehend it, and God is the one who made it. Like if there is that radical of a disparity between who God is and between who we are, then, yeah, I mean, we should have a a serious element of fear. We should, I mean, God affirms it himself. You cannot see my face. You can't see who I really am. For man should not see me and live. It's why God, if you look at the next part of this, it's why God tells Moses just after this, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. So God is like saying, Moses, you're going to get a glimpse of me, but here's like how much of a glimpse you can see of me and still even just keep breathing. So I'm going to put you on this mountain, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. So I'm going to hide you behind a a rock on the mountain, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So I'm going to cover you, not just on the mountain, not just behind a rock, but cover with my hand until I've gone by, and then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. So I'm already gone to that point. You're not seeing my face, you're seeing my back. But my face shall not be seen. I mean, it's amazing the painstaking detail God goes through to give Moses just the smallest glimpse of who he is. And if you know the rest of the story, Moses comes down the mountain and his face is shining because he is so overwhelmed by the presence of the glory of the Lord. The central problem of the Old Testament that we see, we saw it. Presented last week when we looked at Genesis, when sin enters into the world, we see it here, uh, as we see kind of the the fruits of the golden calf fiasco and us being broken, sinful people. How does a holy God dwell with and have a relationship with a broken, sinful people who would be totally consumed in his presence? I just want to kind of camp out on this here for a second. Because again, I think especially for those of you who are maybe exploring Christianity or you're trying to rediscover Christianity or you're maybe trying to figure out what it is that you exactly believe, I think one of the most important starting points in understanding who God is is he is so much greater than us. I mean, this, this scene is just a small way to, to communicate this radical disparity that we're talking about. In fact, here, here's what... Here's, I, want, I just feel like this is this important. Um, I want to draw something for you. Everybody just... Hold her laughter. Okay. Um, Okay. All right. Does this work? Did I do this right? Testing. Ooh. Okay. We're good. Here's what we've learned over the last few weeks, okay? That there was God, that's a crown, be nice, and there was man. And God created us to exist in perfect, right relationship with him. But what we saw last week is the first sin entered into the world, and that relationship was broken, leading to a tremendous divide between God and man. Probably the best way I can think about it is a gap between us. Here's a crown there. Now, I think that pretty much all people everywhere, if you have any belief in God, is it still working? Oh, good. It is. Um, If you have a belief in God, and I think the vast majority of people do, they at least believe that there's something greater than us out there. What's even acknowledged that there's something that has to be done in order to kind of like be good enough for God? Um, and, and I think the ultimate question is like, okay, so I think all of us at the starting point would say that there's a gap between who we are and who God is. The question is, like, what is the nature of that gap? And, and I think a lot of times when I, when I ask people or when, you know, you think about, um, like, I, I don't know, there's all sorts of ways to ask the question, like, when you die, would you go to heaven or hell? Most people would say, well, there's a hell, because I don't think Hitler could be in heaven. Um, but if I'm going to go somewhere, I'm going to go to heaven. And the reason I would go to heaven is because I'm not perfect. I don't think I'm perfect. I get angry and I do bad things. But I'm better than most people. I do these certain things, and I don't do these certain things. And that means kind of the, the gulf, the, the chasm, can be bridged through me being a really good person. I, I think a lot of us, um, I, I, I grew up thinking this way uh, very heavily, Now, I think the problem with that line of thinking, or the line of thinking that if I just do enough, the gap between me and God can be bridged, is that you're radically misunderstanding the nature of the gulf. That what we see in a scene like the one we just saw, in the relationship between God and Moses, is the chasm is not like a small step. Uh, It's not even like a great leap. It is almost infinite in nature. It is impossible for any man in his own power, no matter how devout he or she is, to bridge that on their own. And so a lot of times you hear this, you know, I don't know, maybe visualize, what's a, what's a gulf um, in our city? There, there used to be, there used to be, for example, a gap between downtown and the highlands. Did you know that? There's a pedestrian bridge now, but there was a gap between downtown and the highlands. And in And so as we think about kind of us being good enough for God, that would be like me saying to you, okay, well, here's the deal. Um, There's no bridge. You know, we're back in whenever there was no bridge between downtown and the Highlands, and we're on the downtown side of Denver, and I say to you, here's the deal. You need to get to the other side. You need to get on the other side uh, where I-25 is running all the 15 lanes of traffic or whatever it is, and you need to jump. Okay, you need to jump in order to get there. Now, here's the reality: is that some of us would be better at jumping than others, right? Like, so some of us, um, some of us would be terrible. Some of us would just trip, um, you know, from the very beginning because we don't have any coordination. Um, others of us are a little bit athletic, you know, and we kind of remember the you know, the, the presidential fit class from test from uh, elementary school or middle school, and you jump a little bit further. And uh, some of you, you crossfit, so you jump real far, right? I uh, guess, yeah, you're just functionally fit. And then, um, you know, there would probably be like a person or two that's like an Olympic long jumper, and they would get a long jump, and they would probably jump farther than anybody else, but they still would jump down into traffic. That's kind of the way that us thinking that we can be good enough for God works. I mean, some of us, we trip, right? Like there's certain people like, I don't even believe in God. It doesn't matter what type of person I am. And man, like you don't even get a running start. You just stumble right over the edge, right into traffic. Other people are like, well, I don't know if there's a God, but I'm at least a moral person and I'm better than most people. Yeah, like you might jump a little bit further. Other people are extremely, extremely devout. I have strong beliefs, convictions, understandings. Look how devout I am. Look how charitable I am. Look how tolerant I am. The reality is, is many of us can jump further than other people. But the problem is, is none of us can jump far enough to bridge this infinite gulf between us and God. That's what we're seeing in this scene that there's such a radical disparity between who we are and between who God is that he enters into the room for a relationship. He enters into the room to bless us. He enters into the room and we go poof and are overwhelmed in the midst of his presence. Now that's the problem. The question then is, what is the solution? And the mysterious solution of Advent is ultimately the answer to this It's interesting. Bonhoeffer wrote about this and said the way that God answers this problem, the way that God answers this question is, um, okay, good, we're off, Um, is the most um, mysterious truth in the human story. In fact, Bonhoeffer writes this He says, talking about Advent, it really surpasses, surpasses all understanding that the birth of a child is to bring the great turning around of all things. He elsewhere he elaborates on this. Bonhoeffer writes, that is the unrecognized mystery of this world. That Jesus Christ, that this Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, was himself the Lord of glory. That was the mystery of God. It was a mystery because God became poor, low, lowly, and weak out of love for humankind. Because God became a human being like us so that we could become divine. And because he came to us so that we would come to him. That is the depth of the deity whom we worship as mystery and comprehend as mystery. What Bonhoeffer is saying is we've identified the central problem of the human story and that God's solution is deeply mysterious. How is God and man ultimately united back to one another through the God-man, through the incarnation that we celebrate at Advent in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Now, here's how I want to That's a lot of quotes, right? That's that's a lot of. So, how do we kind of like wrap our minds around like why is this significant? What exactly does this mean? Um, Well, I think that in order for us to kind of tackle this, here is what I want to do. I want to talk to you kind of very theologically about this, and then talk to you very practically in terms of like what does this mean for our lives. So, very theologically, and then very practically. Now, from the theological standpoint, and here is the deal: the, the goal in this is not for us to kind of be able to flex our intellectual muscles. The goal is for us is to be able to understand the depth of the mystery that we're trying to wrap our minds around, is that it is a deeply mysterious truth that God becomes man. Theologians historically called this the hypostatic union. Uh, the hypostatic union is, you want to define that, it's the union of Christ's human and divine natures in one person. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to read for you a very long kind of quote um, from, from 451 A.D., uh, where kind of the most brilliant minds in the world at that time got together to try to wrap their minds around, like, how does God and man exist, coexist in the person of Jesus Christ? And it's interesting. It's, like, it's almost like they can't even find the words to really explain it. They're like, it's like this, and they keep saying the same thing over and over again. They can't simplify it. They can't be like, well, you know, it's like shampoo and conditioner in one thing, and uh, God and man, in one person. That's the way it is. Simple as that. No, like, not that simple. It's far, far more complex. In fact, look at at what they write. They say, "...we then, following the, the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect Godhead, so fully God, and also perfect in manhood, fully man, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial or coessential with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, according to the manhood. See how they're saying the same thing over there? Over? Fully God, fully man, fully God, fully man, fully God, fully man. And all things like unto us, without sin... "...begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably... I wanted to say with liberty and justice for all, but that's not in there. That's a different document. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather of the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers is handed down to us. Amen. Yeah, woo! <laughs> and it's just, I think your brain is supposed to hurt when you read that. Because the mysterious solution of Advent, that God would become man and make his dwelling among us, Emmanuel, God with us, is deeply, deeply. Mysterious. But in the midst of that mystery, tremendously good news is given to us. I mean, that Jesus is fully God. Like, that's what we celebrate in the hypostatic union. That on one hand, Jesus is fully God. Like, he's not 25% God. He's not 50% God. He's not 99% God. He is fully God. And that's really great news because it means that Jesus, he comes and he works in the world in such a way that he can forgive sins. Uh, People everywhere kind of understood that who can forgive sins but God alone? Only Jesus can, or only God can. And Jesus claims to be God. And, And that's really good news for us or that he can give life. That The byproduct of uh, sin is death, and Jesus comes and he does only what God can do, that he can come and give life. But he's not just fully God, but he's fully man as well, and that's really great news because he's a representative for our obedience. We were meant to be perfect, but we're not perfect. But God, out of his grace and mercy, lets Jesus be perfect on our behalf. A perfect Human being on our behalf, or that he can substitute as a sacrifice. That God, he's great and he's holy and he's just and he's a good judge and he doesn't look at sin and he doesn't just kind of turn his eye to it. No, he has to punish it. He has to bring uh, a conviction for it and he brings it on the person of Jesus because he's fully man in our place rather than on us as well. And here's what's really beautiful about this as we think about the great problem of humanity. If we can bring up my excellent drawing skills again, we still linked here. There we go. Yeah. That, what happens as we were trying to ask the question, I mean, just like in downtown, uh, you look and you see this almost infinite gulf between what used to, you know, what used to be an infinite gulf between downtown and the highlands. Uh, this infinite gulf between us and God is bridge. Just like there's a bridge called the pedestrian bridge, I think it's called the millennium bridge, is that right? Uh, in between downtown and the highlands, and it's got kind of two rails that make it possible for you to travel from one side to the other. So with Jesus, there are these two great pillars that, that Jesus is... God, that, that Jesus is man, that makes it possible for God and man to have relationship with one another. And in the midst of this, does it remain mysterious? Yes, is it a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around? Yes, can we necessarily write up a diagram to tell you exactly how God and man fully indwell in the single person of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. But here's the thing. It's not that Christianity is irrational. It's not that Christianity just chalks everything up to faith. But there are moments in our our faith where we come to the point with God where no matter how educated we are, no matter how many books we've read, no matter how many degrees we have, the reality is, is we stop and we wonder and we have awe and we worship. If that doesn't exist in our faith, then we are worshiping and believing in something or someone less than God. And we stop and we marvel and we give thanks. That yes, this is mysterious, but it is a beautiful mystery that can trickle down and shape the most practical areas of our lives. That's what we see with Bonhoeffer. Now, how is that? Well I think what you see with Bonhoeffer is that he felt like once the most important mystery of the universe is answered like for example who is god that's ultimately the question that advent is how can god and man dwell with one another this is the good news that advent brings well, the reality is is that for Bonhoeffer, this central truth being answered uh, was able to then trickle down to the most mysterious aspects of life. The, the reality is, is that it's kind of like once he had that question answered. And, and I think a lot of times we take it for granted that, that Jesus was the way that he was. I mean, we see plenty of other examples where people kind of imagine, you look at the pagan myths or you look at Greek mythology and you see God become man, and he's terrible. He's sleeping with people. He's killing people. I mean, he could have been like that, but he's not. God becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he is the most loving, the most thoughtful, the most brilliant, the most sacrificial expression of divinity we could ever begin to wrap our minds around. That this great mystery of who God is is given clarity in the person and the work of Jesus Christ where he's touchable and he's holdable. He can even, in Advent, he can be cradled in his mom's arms. And finally, we can have some level of certainty into the mystery of who God is and how is he going to relate to us and how is he going to fix the most problematic issue in our lives of how do we dwell with him and him with us. And when mystery, the mystery of who God is, becomes clarity in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That becomes a lens through which we can then be given some level of clarity, and not maybe even clarity, but assurance in the areas of our life that that really freak us and stress us out. And for Bonhoeffer, he's in prison and isn't mysterious why this guy who was opposing the most terrible dictator in the 20th century is is in prison and is executed. And is executed 10 days before the Nazi regime surrenders. Is that mysterious? Yes. Can you pull up an iPad and diagram? Here's exactly why this happened. No. But for Bonhoeffer, even as he was in prison, awaiting his inevitable execution, there was such a robustness and an anchor for his soul in the midst of the mystery of God and, and the clarity that the incarnation brings through Adva that he was given assurance in the midst of the greatest trial he ever experienced. I think the same is for us as well. This is really difficult for me to, I mean, I'm still trying to like wrap my mind around this if I'm totally transparent with you. But it's like there are these areas of our lives where it's so hard to understand what in the world is going on. Somebody you love gets really sick and you don't want them to be sick. You get sick and you don't want to be really sick somebody breaks up with you and you thought that was going to be the person you were with for the rest of your life and all of a sudden this future that you kind of dreamed of is gone. Marriage is hard and it's difficult and you and your wife are fighting with one another and it was like, look, our plan was to get married and like, have fun and be able to watch the entirety of Breaking Bad together, not, not fight like this. You have kids and the kids are crazy and demanding and somewhat tyrannical, even though they're in these little bodies. And so it's like, how do you do that? Like, how do you impact the entire environment of the house? And like, I just kind of had envisions of you growing up and praising me and loving everything I do, um, not kind of running the sleep schedule of our home forever, uh, or seemingly forever. there's things that happen in our lives in a broken and fallen world where they remain deeply, deeply mysterious. But apart from the mystery of Advent, they're deeply hopeless. They're frighteningly hopeless. You're in a marriage where there's deep conflict, and I think apart from the mystery of Advent, it is hopeless and purposeless. But I think through the lens of the gospel, like, that trial that you're walking through has some level of intentionality and purpose and hope and possibility of redemption and restoration. You're sick. and No matter how hard you pray, or somebody you care about is sick, and no matter how hard you pray, they're not getting better. and It doesn't seem like they're going to get better. You can't exactly pull out the whiteboard and diagram. Like, why is that happening? Why did that happen? And I think apart from the mystery and the clarity of Advent, I mean, it's it's hopeless. Like, if all we have is this life, like we eat, drink, and be merry, and then tomorrow we die, and you get dealt a bad hand, somebody you love gets dealt a bad hand, and they're going to die quicker, they're going to have a hard life because they have special needs, it's hopeless, it's purposeless. But you look at the mystery and the clarity of Advent, that God is willing to become man. He doesn't just give us a bunch of rules to try to improve us morally. But he enters fully into the full experience of the brokenness of human life. Like, I think I can start to at least begin to see this mysterious aspect of my life with some sense of hope and certainty and clarity. You're somebody like Bonhoeffer. You're in prison. You've done nothing other than oppose this terrible dictator, and you get executed. I mean, you see for him, it's like apart from the mystery and the clarity of Advent. It's hopeless. It's purposeless. He's had a, a life that has ended far too quickly. But as he interprets his circumstance and trial through the lens of the clarity and the mystery of Advent, I mean, for him, he receives great hope. To say, I have a deeper appreciation of what that first Christmas must have been like when the Son of God was born in a manger. I have a hope to know that my life will not be cut too short, but I have been reunited with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And I will not die too quickly. I will have the opportunity to step into eternal life. I think that's where this mystery really does begin to shape and influence the most practical areas of our lives. I feel like it's a really hard thing to articulate. I'm just being transparent. I feel like I should end right now, but I want to tell you what I'm feeling, because I try to feel my feelings. Um... It's a really hard thing to articulate. I don't know if I've done a good job of articulating it. But here's what I want to do. Um, I'm not saying that, so you come and tell me afterwards you did a good job, okay? I promise. What what I would love to do is I feel like there are parts, there's, there's things we can explain really well, and there's things that are deeply mysterious, like we've seen tonight. And I think what we want to do is we want to pray, and we want to sing, and we want to take communion, and we want to ask God to help give clarity in the midst of this mystery of Advent, and let that be a filter through which we can interpret and understand the most mysterious areas of our lives. So that's what I want to ask us to do. Um, I'm going to pray, and I'll explain communion, and then uh, we'll respond in worship. God, we thank you for the grandeur of who you are. We thank you for stories like this, where you are more than a buddy that we hang out with or grab a beer with, but you are so great and so majestic, and so powerful that men, even a great man like Moses, who is far more devout and dedicated than any of of us in this room, quake in your presence. And I pray that we would have an awareness of the greatness of who you are in the same way. That we would not see the opportunity for a relationship with you. We would not see your blessing in our lives as something we're deeply entitled to. That's something that we... uh, earn through a little self-help and moral effort, but instead something we do not deserve. But God, in your grace and your mercy, even though the gulf is infinite in nature, and even though we are undeserving of your favor and your love, you have stepped out of history or out of heaven into history to be with us. You've become a man, fully God, and fully man. So that God and man can be reunited back to one another. It is mysterious. It is hard for us to wrap our minds around this. It is hard to understand how this is true, but it is. And it's not just true, and it's not just something we should know, but it's something we should feel and experience and let shape the most tragic areas of life. Give us hope where it seems like it's hopeless through the beauty of the incarnation and who you are and what you've done. And we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.